I'm pleased to introduce today's keynote speaker, Luis Alberto Urrea. Mr. Urrea is the best-selling author of 13 books, including The Hummingbird's Daughter, The Devil's Highway, and Across the Wire. Born in Tijuana to an American mother and a Mexican father, Mr. Urrea uses his dual culture life experiences to explore greater themes of love, loss, and triumph. His most recent book is Into the Beautiful North, which follows a group of Mexican women determined to save their village by recruiting immigrant men to return back across the border with them. Mr. Urrea lives with his family in Naperville, Illinois, where he is a professor of creative writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Luis Alberto Urrea. Buenas tardes. ¿Inglés o español? ¿Los dos? Combinación. Yeah, I am Luis. Uh, Spanglish. Orale, homies. Um, I was born in Tijuana. I was raised in San Diego. Uh, I've been here in the Chicago area for about 10 years. Um, bienvenidos al Zócalo, where my family came from, which was Rosario, Sinaloa. It was more of a plazuela. Do you know the plazuela? This feels like a plazuela, a little closer, more, uh, more uh, natural and uh, relaxed. I think we have a great opportunity today to hear uh, stuff that we don't know about. I'm really looking forward to hearing these scholars. I just thought I would tell you a little bit about, about my own journey, my family's journey, and uh, some experiences I've had here in Chicago. And I think Chicago and the Midwest offers a different experience than the places I was raised and the places where some of these Socalo folks have come from. And I'm curious to hear, you know, uh, what your impressions are. I will tell you that a lot of people don't know some things about Chicago, which I find interesting. You know, our, our first permanent settler here, the first non-indigenous permanent settler here, does anybody know who he was? Jean-Baptiste Dussable. Jean-Baptiste Dussable was a Latino from Santo Domingo, right here on the mouth of the river. So the raza was in the house from the beginning. Los Latinos were here first, which I think is kind of curious. It's a really interesting little bit of trivia. You'd think Jean-Baptiste is French, but he was from Santo Domingo. Um, my father was from Rosario, Sinaloa. Like I said, my mom was from New York City. She was actually from Staten Island. And uh, they met in a romantic swoon in San Francisco and got married. And uh, I always imagine my mother thinking she's going off to a hacienda in Mexico with charros and mariachis. And she actually went to a dirt street in Tijuana, Rampa Independencia. House is still there, Rampa Independencia, Mil Dos, dirt street. Now it's paved, no plumbing. Big shock to my mom. Um, I was born on the road to the dog track. Uh, to Agua Caliente, uh, in a little place that's upstairs from a botica. That's where I came from. And uh, crossed into the United States at about five. Uh, we had, I had tuberculosis. I was dying. There was a barrio explosion of, of poverty diseases. I had them. I had about four major diseases at once. So they came across the border. My father worked in a tuna cannery and then was a bread truck driver and finally worked in bowling alleys. Um, my mother worked in a department store. And uh, it was interesting to me to watch my father try to get the American experience. It was very hard for him. He was huero. I get my, my blue eyes and so forth from my dad, not my mom. 
Uh, it might be instructive to you to know that my grandmother, my father's mother, was named Guadalupe Murray. And my uncle was Carlos Hubbard. So, you know, in Mexico, we too are the melting pot. You hear that here, but it's, it's true there too. And my father, in trying to get the Americanness that always eluded him, had an interesting thing he did. And it may be one of the reasons why I work in higher education now. But he would get his co-workers to memorize the dictionary. Muy profesor, mi papá, you know? He would make them memorize five pages a week of the dictionary. And we would have these little meetings in our little tenement where these guys would come and sit, and my father would drill them. My father was a military guy. He was a captain in the Mexican army. So he would convert into a kind of a drill instructor, and he would pace up and down smoking Pall Mall cigarettes, and he would quiz people on the dictionary. He'd say, Quiero saber que es un aardvark. Tu Juan. Que es un aardvark. And you'd see this guy panic, you know. It's an animal with a big nose. He worked it really hard. Um, I was really fortunate in so many ways. I had that gift of literature, uh, probably because of my mom. My mom read to me as a little boy. She read Dickens to me and uh, Mark Twain and all these, and I didn't really understand them, uh, but I was really fascinated by the language. My father also was enamored of literature, but my father believed that everything good came from Mexico. And he would come home all the time and announce to me, you know, the satellite that's up in space, designed by a Mexican. Wow, you know, color TV, Mexicano designed it. It's a washing machine, Mexicano. So one day he came home from Tijuana and he brought home Homer's Odyssey, Spanish edition. He slammed it down on the table. I don't know if your dads are like this. My dad was prone to real macho displays, you know. Boom! He says, Luis, study it in the original Spanish. <laughs> Era nacionalista, mi papá. Totally Mexicano. So in a kind of a, a miracle, I was, I was hired uh, in 1982 to teach expository writing at Harvard. And it began journeys around the United States. And I really, I'd never seen anywhere. I'd seen Mexico, and I'd seen Southern California. That was it. Maybe the Grand Canyon. So going to Boston for the first time in 82 changed my perspective on the world. Uh, and, you know, my writing has allowed me to travel a lot and to see a lot of things. And, you know, they, they wanted me specifically to address some of these issues we'll be talking about today. And I wanted to tell you two anecdotes that you might find interesting. I find very interesting about the Midwest and this experience we're discussing and all the changes that are going on. But um, one of them happened in Naperville. I live out in Naperville. I don't know if you know Naperville. I was certainly the first Latino of any sort in our neighborhood, and I was the only liberal in our neighborhood. So people, and I'm certainly the only writer. So people come by and sometimes look at me like, "Whoa, you know, that's the that's the alien." Um, and we have a, a pancake house on 75th Street uh, where all the business people go and have breakfast before they go to work. Very conservative, all white. And there's a, a busboy in there named Antonio. And I love this guy, Antonio. He looks like an Aztec warrior. Chaparrito. Little, he's like 4'2". He's got a ponytail, and he's covered with heavy metal tattoos. Demon tattoos. Dragons, 666, you know. 
And uh, I, I, we've eaten there a long time, and I've watched him go by, and I've told my wife, I'm going to talk to that guy. I'm going to talk to that guy. I want to say hi to him. I know he's Mexicano. And he was walking by one day with a bunch of trays, and I said, Yulo, paisano, como estas? You know? And he whipped around, and he looked at me with huge eyes, and I thought, oh, no, he thinks I'm like immigration, man, you know? <laughs> and I said, soy de Tijuana. What? You're from Tijuana? Yeah. So we started talking. We became friends. So I've spoken to Antonio for a couple of years, and he sort of trusts me a little bit, and he told me this story that I wanted to share with you because I think it's indicative of some of the hope. A couple of us were talking in the green room about hope. I have to feel hope about us, our countries, the border, the immigration situation. The people who feed you propaganda and, I think, lies aren't people from the border. And I don't think they have sympathy for it or love for the culture. Um, it's my world, so I do. So I do feel hope. And sometimes I get in trouble on panels because people who write about the border often write, you know, really negative stuff about the border. And I heard myself in Oregon recently talking about the good things that unite our countries. And one of the really famous writers about the border sitting two people down from me into the microphone audibly said, Oh, God! and then turned away from me and wouldn't look at me. And I know he thought I was lying, but I do feel hope. And this is one of the stories that gives me hope. Antonio came up here to be a rock guitarist. He thought, well, he'll come to the United States and become a heavy metal superstar. Not easy when you're undocumented. You arrive in Chicago. Um, so he got a job as a mesero. He lives in Aurora. He rides a bicycle to work every morning, a bicycle home every day. He sends the money home to his mother and father who are retired and don't have enough money to take care of themselves. And his brother, he paid for his brother's wedding back home. So Antonio finds out that he's got cancer. He had throat cancer. And now he's here with no insurance, of course, no money to, to have surgery, and no one to look out for him. The conservative white businessman that he attends to every morning found out through the waitresses that he was ill. And among themselves, knowing he was, quote, illegal, they took up a collection in the restaurant for the thousands of dollars required to treat his cancer. They paid for his treatment and his surgery because they got to know him personally and realized what a hard-working good person he was. They forgot their agenda and responded to him as a human being. Now, when I talk to him, he says, I can't go home. I said, why not? And he said, because I owe service to these people who took care of me. And I'm going to give them the best service I can give until I feel like I paid back a little bit. That is, it's a crazily beautiful story. I put it in a an introduction to a book called Underground America that Dave Eggers just did. It's, it's a good book. It's a good anthology if you're interested. And the other story I wanted to just tell you is something that has fascinated me so much that I made it the gist of part of my, or part of the gist of my new novel, um, Into the Beautiful North, and that's Kankakee, Illinois. Is anybody from Kankakee? No? Well, come on. Let's all go down there. Who? Somebody? You are? I love Kankakee. Um, I'll tell you this quick story. I, I had been writing about uh, you know, this issue. I've been publishing a lot of books, as you heard. And the Kankakee librarian 
invited me to come down and speak at the Kankakee Public Library. And she said, now when you drive down here, be sure you don't hit any turkeys on the road. And I thought, oh, wow, you know. And it, Kankakee at that time had been voted one of the worst cities in the country to live in. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this as a lark. I'm going to go down to their little library and talk to the little librarian. And my wife and I drove down to Kankakee, and we could not find the library. They had given us the address. We drove into town, and we could not find it. We drove back and forth, back and forth. I thought it was going to be a little brick library with six or seven retired ladies with some cookies, you know? And the address they had given me was a corporate tower in downtown Kankakee, a silver seven, eight-story tower. And I said, you know, I, I don't know what... I, I'm going to pull into this building and see if they can tell me where the library is. And I pulled into the parking lot, and there were all these people walking into the tower. And I realized that the tower was the library, this incredibly futuristic building. So we went walking in, and there were, there were all these Mexicanos walking in, speaking Spanish. And I didn't expect that. I was kind of looking around. We got inside. There were 350 people inside. And that was pretty nice. But then the mayor came, and he presented me with the key to the city. So I thought, this is a good gig, you know. I told him, I'm going to make bling out of it and wear it on a chain, because I'd never gotten the key to a city before. And I was talking about my books. And at the end of it, it I was talking about a book called The Devil's Highway, about the U.S. Border Patrol and people lost in the Arizona desert. At the end of the talk, a young man stood up in the back, Mexicano, and he said, I'm proud of this book. I'm glad you wrote this book. He said, because now these people can see what we went through so they can eat salads. And this ripple, it was kind of a shockwave, went through the whole audience, kind of went, whoa. And I thought, what an amazing thing to say, right? So we got done. And I, you know, they started applauding, and I thought, okay, now's my time to sign books. I was getting my pen out, you know, I'll sign autographs. And they all got up and went to the kid. And I thought, what the hell with the kid? I'm the author. They went and were giving this young man love and affection. And I thought, something's going on in Kankakee that I don't understand. It, everything was different than what I expected. So I started talking to the mayor, and I started talking to the librarians, and I ended up writing an article about it for the New York Times. Um, but this is what happened in Kankakee. And I hope this is a good introduction to what we're going to hear today. But Kankakee, hard times, rust belt, lost industry, lost businesses. The HMO that was in that tower left, sold it back to the city for a, you know, a symbolic dollar. The mayor, a lifelong resident of Kankakee, 62 years old, Mayor Green, took the, the, the tower and decided that he would make half of it City Hall, but the other half he would make into the library. He had a sense that if he made the library the center of the renewal of the city, that it would, it would, it would cast a certain spell over everybody. So they, they high-teched the library. They made it a sanctuary spot where kids could come at night, brightly lit, no gang warfare, police to keep everybody safe. They had a place to go to. They put in all kinds of internet. That was smart. He noticed as his population was dropping that a population of Latinos was appearing that he had never seen before. 6.4% Mexicanos, Spanish-speaking Mexicanos. And he realized that these were undocumented people, and he did not know where they were coming from or what they were coming for. 
So Mayor Green, in a bit of native wisdom and genius, went among these workers and started asking, where are you working? Where do you work? They were working at greenhouses outside of town. Where are you from? The vast majority of the people in the town were coming from Leon, Guanajuato. So he thought, that's really interesting. Why Leon, Guanajuato? This is where the genius, I think, of humanity comes in. And some of the new paradigms, I hope, are happening in immigration. Instead of freaking out, instead of going on a campaign about the invasion of the illegals, he called the mayor of Leon, Guanajuato. He said, hi, I'm the mayor of Kankakee, Illinois, and we want to know why your people are coming. So the mayor of Leon invited him to come. So Mayor Green got the city council, the head librarian, chief of police, and they flew to Leon, Guanajuato, and had a city meeting with the city government and said, we're in these kind of problems in Kankakee. And the mayor of Leon said, well, we are in these kind of problems here in Leon, Guanajuato. They, first of all, forged a city, sister city arrangement where they became sister cities to work together to try and help each other through their difficulties. The mayor came back to Kankakee and decided to integrate that population instead of keep it in the shadows. He got a Mexican-American police officer, head detective, speak Spanish. He went to those places of employment and he told the workers they were going to institute policies in the city to help them find pathways to citizenship, uh, pathways to ESL learning, pathways to home ownership, and workshops in taking part in the municipal life of a city and then welcomed them to buy homes that they would help them buy and settle permanently in Kankakee, which they did, saving their town. And the next thing Mayor Green did was when people were being displaced from places like Cabrini Green, they also invited those families and said, we, you can find a home with us, and we will help you settle. Amazing. Amazing. The, the evidence of humanity overcoming fear, propaganda, even personal agenda, even politics. I see it over and over again. I see it in myself. To me, I always remember the dirt street in Tijuana. I cannot believe I'm here with you in Chicago, of all places, kind of freezing my butt off. I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, it's a shock to people who come here. But it's amazing to me that I can do this and be here with you. So I feel like I kind of have represented, in some ways, this, this immigration paradigm shifting. Um, because of that book about the Border Patrol, I have somehow ended up being intimate with the U.S. Border Patrol, the last thing I ever expected on Earth. They teach my books at the Academy, and the agents keep in touch with me. The one amazing thing for me is I get to see some of the inside things, and I wanted to toss a couple of these things out to you um, briefly. One of them, I was in uh, El Paso this summer interviewing Border Patrol agents uh, for a piece I did. I just published, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I just published a cover story in Playboy, but um, whatever. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> There's nobody naked in it, but, uh, but they wanted me to go down and take a look at why was El Paso the third safest city in the country and Juarez was so dangerous. Um, and the findings were really interesting. But I, I was hanging out with the Border Patrol guys as part of the story, 
And they pointed out to me that since Homeland Security has taken over the Border Patrol, you know, the numbers are, are huge. Americans don't really, I don't think, hear this in the, the broadcasts that the numbers of immigrants are down in double digits. The numbers of Border Patrol are hugely inflated. For example, in the, the book, The Devil's Highway, I mentioned, um, that station I wrote the book about had 32 agents when I wrote the book. They have 350 agents now. They have so many agents that the government had to tear down the station and build a complex to hold the agents. They didn't have prisoners, but they have all these agents that they need to house. In Santa Teresa, which is just west of El Paso, they traditionally had 30 agents. They now have 300-plus agents. So this senior supervisory agent, 30 years in the service, went to lunch with him, and I said, what now is the greatest threat to the U.S. Border Patrol agent? What's the biggest danger? You know what he said? Boredom. I said, boredom? And he said, yeah, why do you think we're all reading your books? <laughs> we go out in the truck and read your books. And he said, uh, for example, in the El Paso, the West El Paso district, they used to apprehend 75 to 100 people a night, and uh, the number is down to 75 a week or a month. Um, and he sent me, I don't have time to read it to you, but he sent me an email story about a young woman that he wanted to help enter the United States because he was so moved by her. It's really interesting, and I think one of the things that I've always believed is communication and information leads to transformation. You get inflammation. You don't get a lot of information. I'd feel a lot more comfortable if somebody like Lou Dobbs gave me an hour of explaining what Title VIII is, what immigration law is, but you'll never hear that. And I would feel much better if I heard data that was reflecting 2009, not 1994. But you're not going to hear that. Uh, you'll hear it today, though. I'm very interested to see what the changes are, what's going on, how we adapt. Uh, I find it exciting. I find this a very exciting region to be in, to see these changes going on. The last thing I'll toss out to you about my Border Patrol friend, I don't know if it's a bit of a warning or not. I don't want to overextend my talk, but... When we were talking about all this stuff, I said, okay, so the agency, you guys are a little bored. It's calmer on the border. He said, for the first time in history, we, f we feel like we have the border pretty much under control. I said, well, that's not in the radio. I don't hear it on the radio. I don't see that on TV. He said, well, there are a couple of things you don't hear on the radio, you don't hear on the TV. Here in Texas, 2,000 weapons a day are crossing into Mexico from American dealers. That's something you don't hear. He said, secondly, uh, the discussions in Washington right now are to pull the agents away from the border. And I said, pull them away from the border? And he said, yeah. He said, they're talking in Washington right now about in, in the Border Patrol itself, not in Obama's White House. But this is what they want to propose. Pulling the agents off the border and beginning internal Border Patrol. <laughs> they want to send the trucks off the border and drive around our neighborhoods now and patrol, you know, Pilsen, little village, back of the yards, mile Barrio Logan. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, that means that I could be walking down the street with, I don't know, an Italian guy, and you'd see us, and what would you do? Would your agents pull over and grab the Italian guy? And I'm the one born in Tijuana? I'm the one whose, past, whose uh, birth certificate says Mexicano nacido en Tijuana. 
my language was Spanish first, then English, and you'd let me go? And he said, well, it's not perfect. (laughs) I said, no, it's not. Interestingly, the senior agents are against it. But the way the systems work, that if you speak up too much, you can get yourself in trouble and end your career. But they're trying to say, no, that's not a wise way to do things. They don't want that to happen. Um, I think one of the secrets for me has been something I never expected. Like I said, I never thought I would know Border Patrol agents and actually be friends with them. But this thing about information is so powerful that I realize that I owe a lot to them for giving me data that helps me write my books. But I've realized in a really weird way they feel that they owe me back because they feel like I humanize their service. The reason older agents make the younger agents study my books is because they feel that younger agents don't understand the culture. And they want them to understand, believe it or not, the humanity of people who are coming. Which to me is so overwhelmingly strange. It feels like a miracle. So I'm here, you know, I I live, like I said, in Naperville. I teach at UIC. I don't see enough Latinos coming through UIC. I I think we're still a little shy sometimes. I want us to be bolder. So I invite everybody, wherever you're at, come transfer to UIC and study with me. Um, It's a wonderful thing. I think as our stories get out, as our excellence is understood and seen, as our accomplishments are recognized, the paradigm shifts. I think it changes. We're in the middle of, I think, an epic change right now. I don't know what's going on. I'm very curious about what's going on. Um, you know, I get glimmers here and there in the field. It's going to be really wonderful to be able to, to have my suspicions or my questions answered with real scholarship here today. So um, I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm really happy you're here. Um, let's listen to these folks and find out something new. So thank you. Thank you.